0: I'm George Hirsch. And I'm Alex Getzfried. This week on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio, we're gearing up for a bountiful holiday season, a time to
1: give thanks and give back. To celebrate, we've got some extra special guests on our show. Culinary legend Chef Jacques Pepin and his family join our table for a two-part conversation about sharing food, tradition, and bounty.
2: There is no place like the kitchen when you come from school, sitting down. Smelling the kitchen, hearing the voice of your mother, your father, the cling of the, the equipment, and the taste. I mean those tastes of dishes that you have as a child, regardless of whether you where, wherever you come from in anywhere in the world, those tastes are very essential, very visceral. They stay with you forever. It's
0: time to come together on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio.
1: We're honored to be welcoming a culinary legend and PBS icon on our show today, along with his family. Chef Jacques Pepin, his daughter Chef Claudine Pepin, and her husband, Chef Rolly Wesson, are all here. Their accomplishments in the food world truly make them the first family of culinary arts in America. Welcome Jacques, Claudine, and Rolly. Thanks for joining us. That was
3: very, very generous. Thank you. <laughs> yeah,
1: right. Well, it's, it's from my heart, and that's the only place I can ever speak from. But first, I have to start off. This, this Jock, I have to direct this towards you uh-huh. first. There's something that you and I share that we have in common, and it goes back a number of years. I think it goes back to uh, 1982 for you, 1993 for me. In fact, it was our first. Now, that first is Jacksonville, Florida. Your very first TV series was out of WJCT in Jacksonville, right. as was mine. Oh, was oh it? wow. I have to ask you, though, what made you start in Jacksonville? Because, you're, of course, you're with KQED now, and right. I'm with LAW and WNET, great
2: PBS family. But
1: how did you start in Jacksonville?
2: Well, to start with, I will tell you something that I will be uh, the first, second week of November in Amelia Island. When I go there, during the winter, we run something. I often go to the PBS station. Ah. At the time, I didn't know them. But uh, for some reason, we had a, a British a producer. She asked me if I wanted to do the series. And I said, great. And uh, that's where she ended up. I don't really know how it happened. Uh, because she said, that's where we're going to do it. We have five days to do it. We have thirteen show. I went there with my wife, Gloria, and another friend to cook, and that was <laughs> it. That was the first theory. You're absolutely right. That i yeah. Well,
1: when they were talking with me, because I was down in St. Augustine quite often for uh, uh, the American Culinary Federation, I was a board member back then, and they started talking to me about the TV show. All they kept talking to me, because it would be about 10 years before, would be about Jacques, about Jacques. We did Jacques, we did Jacques. Oh. And um, it was just marvelous to be in your footsteps at that time. But Great, yeah. you, But uh, you, you, you truly, truly, as a, as a chef, as an educator, have done so much for the oh. culinary world. And I, 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 I truly, truly thank you. But there is another connectivity that I want to bring together. And Claudine, you're part of this as well is your roots to our hometown here in East Hampton with the Yeah. good friends. Pierre, another chef legend, PBS legend from Maryland Public Television. Oh, yeah. A A Jacques store, store. yes, yes, yes. yes, yes. And especially
2: Craig Label. Yes. I mean, I got married married in the spring at Craig Label, you know, uh, East Hampton, the spring, in his house in 1966. You know, in the kitchen was uh, René Verdon from the White House, Pierre Frannet, Roger Fessaget from La Caravelle, uh, Jean Verne from the Colony, uh, and me—I mean, uh, <laughs> I
1: saw those pictures. <laughs> it looks like everyone had a lot of fun. A lot of fun. But talking about fun, <laughs> and and again, this is another uh, local local tidbit here. Alex and myself talked about this a few years ago because we wanted to replicate it, but you know, we got busy with the show and everything. Was something that Life Magazine at the time billed as the uh, like Greatest American Chef Picnic
2: on Gardner's Island. Very, very interesting that you said that, because I was on Gardner's Island two weeks ago. I hadn't been there. I hadn't been there in over fifty years. This was in 1964, I believe, sixty-four. Yes. Uh, and uh, and the owner of Gardner's Island somehow uh, different. Th- that time, it was, it was uh, uh, Robert Gardner, the 16th lord of the manor, but now it's descendants. Uh, they invited us two weeks ago with Claudine and in, and it was coincidental, and then we were just looking at the spring from there, you know, I hadn't been, you know from, the, from the windmill there. I hadn't been on that island in 50 years. <laughs> yeah, great picnic.
1: Well, yeah. that shows that you truly are royalty, because what people don't realize that are listening is that you just can't go to Gardner's <laughs> Island. You're, you're not really welcome. Well, you're not. <laughs> it's you, private. You really do
3: have to definitely be invited. Yes. Yeah. 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 That, that's the truth. And the, the people that hosted us were absolutely lovely. Yeah. And generous, gracious.
2: I like, remember that we, we gathered, we gathered driftwood all over the place yes. to do and then Craig LeBron of course, had iron tablecloth to put on top. To, we did our buffet in silver. And then we got two cases of Dom Perignon champagne. And we uh, and Craig decided to go to uh, Baccarat, a quick uh, crystal on 57th Street, and tell the, the guy there, he said, you know, I'm doing that picnic for the New York Times. There is the former chef of De Gaulle, the chef of the way House. out. this said that, could we get a couple of glasses? He said, no, you can't, you've got to pay for it. Uh, so you've got to pay like, I don't know, at the time, 80, 100 dollars a glass. But he said, if none are broken, bring them back. We will take them back. We <laughs> kind of sneak one of those two. And during the night, they were we washed them. They were on a big counter. Uh-huh. Like, I heard that noise during the night. You had a big, a big uh, silver, uh, I mean, a big fish platter hanging on the wall on top. During the night, somehow it broke and broke the twenty-four glass. <laughs> that's what the Gardner's Island is. Yes.
1: Well, that's definitely a one-time, one-time event that could never be replicated. So uh, now all this time on, on public television, all your acclaim, because you are, you've taught millions around the world on TV... In university programs, but you've always maintained with, with PBS, with public television. I know why I have always stayed, but let me ask you wh- why public television and why have you stayed with PBS all these years?
2: Well, you know, just like Julia would say, you know, I am, we don't, we're, we're not, we're not cow, cow to, to any sponsor. We do basically what we want. Yeah, not only. And, uh, and uh, you know, I did 13. Thirteen series of twenty six mm-hmm. show at KQED so in the last thirty some years. So it's always been very good for me, very generous. Uh, you know, it's PBS, uh, and I love PBS for what they do to people. You know, without uh, advertisement, with people teaching, uh, whether it's in area of food or other area too. So yes, I'm very attached to uh, to PBS. So it's with pleasure that I have done all of this, and I would do more if I can do. But now I'm doing it for Claudine. So. <laughs> well, you two have definitely been uh,
1: America's uh, wonder pair of, of culinary arts. I have always received countless, even from my own viewers, my own fans, about about your chemistry, about your time together on TV and how important it is to them. So it's just beautiful, Claudine. Sh- can you share some moments with us of that experience?
3: Oh, we have always had a lot of fun being on camera together. I think probably the beginning part, I mean, I didn't know what I was getting myself into at all. Anyway, my father said, I was in college, I had rented an apartment. And my dad said, you yeah, I want to do this yeah. television. Yeah, I was at BU. And he said, I want to do this television series with you. And we'll shoot it in the summer when you're not in school. What do you think? And the first thing I Thought of was I didn't have any air conditioning, mm. and I don't know, spent any time in Boston in August, but it gets really, really, really hot. And I was like, "Oh, we're going to live in a hotel. I've got hotels." <laughs>
1: yeah, I'm in room and service.
3: That, that is, <laughs> I made that decision. And the, in during the first series, they told me to never look at the camera, so my father would be talking like to you, and I would be staring at him like this, <laughs> like I, I want. I wasn't allowed to look at the camera um they gave me a little bit more freedom later, but uh they just didn't i i don't know <laughs> what they they wanted it to look like you were a guest in mm-hmm. our home, but it would well, if I looked at the camera and then looked at my yeah. dad
2: and looked at the camera but that's what um, but basically they wanted her to be the the vox populi, you know to be able to ask questions that people would want yeah. to ask if they could. You know, why do you do this? Why do you, and in fact, it was funny because a lot of people, she would ask me those questions. Yeah. A lot of people stand there and say, oh, clothing, I mean, what, what are you pulling here? I mean, you know, you know how to do that too. You've seen that. No, she didn't. No. I didn't even tell her the dish we were doing. Yep, she didn't know the true. dish we were doing. So she said, oh, wow, that's how you do this. Yeah. So people <laughs> thought it was fake, but it wasn't.
3: Yeah.
0: But that's why it was always so natural, too. And I think why so many people relate, because a lot of times when I even go back and watch those episodes, it's like, okay, yeah, that's a question that I had. And then you're glad someone's in the studio to ask it.
3: Right. Right. I mean, that that was definitely the idea. And, you know, when you're a producer and stuff, I know you have to be super nice to the talent because I'm kind of Mm -hmm. I play both sides on that one. So I know that there's that. But if I could go back, I would say, would somebody please tell me to cut my fingernails? So like, I'll look back at the shows and I'm like, oh, yeah, you sure. Of course, you can cut be with sure. those fingernails. Sure, sure, yeah, sure. that'll work.
0: That actually makes a good transition to a question that I wanted to ask both of you is that you've both been doing this so long and so deeply involved in the food world and in teaching so many people, whether they be home chefs or, or professionals. What excites you about where the food world is going
2: now? Well, interestingly enough, you want to tell them where we were last night, what we did?
3: Yes. We were at Johnson and Wales University. My husband is a professor there. He's in culinary. There is, they have a new program now. It's uh, sustainability in food systems. And so it's a new bachelor's program. Can you tell them about the bachelor's program? Yes.
2: Yeah, so that that's really going back. To okay. me, going back to me when I was uh, when I was eight years old, going to the market with my mother. At that time, everything was organic, Well, the word organic did not exist. You know, everything was local. Everything was uh, you know there was no refrigeration. My mother bought only what she needed for the day in a restaurant because she had the refrigeration. She had a glacier, that is mm. a block of ice with a couple Whatever she did, we had to finish by the day. And, you know, that, that uh, buying local food, rotation, crop rotation, all of that type of stuff, all of what we do now, that is teaching. It's the way it was when I was a kid, you know, and we're going back to this now to a certain extent. Well, Chef,
1: well, chef it's, it's a pleasure having you join us as well. I wasn't sure if you were g- going to be able to uh, make it in your schedule. So uh, it's, it's a pleasure and an honor to have you part of uh, uh, America's first uh, culinary family. So.
2: Thank you so
4: much. pleasure is truly mine. But it is funny that you asked that question of us today, because literally last night I I invited Jacques and Claudine to come and sit in on one of the um, final projects of of a student-run course in uh, sustainable food systems. And the course is actually called Plant-Based Cuisine. So these students had to produce uh, a five-course tasting menu. And and it's always done for some outside guests, which heightens the anticipation for the students and really heightens their performance. But uh, what's great about the program and what's great about the course is that the students, not only do they learn the technical proficiency necessary for cooking, but they also learn... Uh, how to procure ingredients and how to make great choices within the food system and how to make sure that they're doing no harm as far as, uh, you know, the fish that they buy and and buying from local farms and, and, and choosing food that's local and seasonal and sustainable for maximum nutrition well, and maximum benefit. Yeah, but I mean, they did a good job last night.
2: The food was really good. Yeah.
1: Well, Roly, while you're here, maybe uh, you can also share, because this is, this is uh, something that touches my heart very much is uh uh your role as co-founder with claudine in the uh jacques pepin foundation and your mission and what you do can you can you share with us uh the the critical importance of of your work
4: of course, uh, thank you so much for asking. It, it's it's been a pretty great and amazing journey. Uh, the foundation is fairly young; we just started it five years ago. And uh, Jacques doesn't actually remember this, I don't think. But when when we first said, "Hey, Jacques, we think we want to start a foundation in your name," he said, "Well, it's about time, right?" <laughs> yeah. But, the, but then what was really interesting after that is we said, well, of, of course, you should have a foundation in your name because we want your legacy to continue forever and we want you to always be remembered. And then we said, well, you know, let's think about what we might do. And, and we sort of presented Jacques a menu of choices. And we said, you No, know, are you interested in childhood nutrition? Are you interested in sustainable agricultural practices? Are you interested in teaching high schoolers culinary arts? You know, uh, are you interested in, in teaching people who have just gotten out of jail how to cook so that you can get jobs. And he said, that's the one. That's the one I want to do right there, because those people deserve another chance at life. And culinary can do that for you. A few skills in, in a kitchen can give you an opportunity to, to get a job and to take better care of yourself and to take better care of your families. And we need those jobs. Today. Yeah, And professional kitchens are really a place where everyone fits in. That 100% true. And uh, what was interesting is that at the time I was volunteering in uh, what we call community kitchen here in Rhode Island at the Rhode Island Food Bank, where I was teaching classes to low income populations in order to help them learn some cooking skills that they could either use at home or use professionally and as we started to develop the mission of the foundation we realized that there were uh, over 150 of these organizations across the country that are doing this exact work where they are offering classes in in 12 or 14 or 16 week formats for basic culinary skills to help people learn the skills that they need to get a job and and we just find it incredibly rewarding because it's it's truly a win 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 in the sense that you know society gets a willing worker back the individual gains confidence and sense of purpose. They gain the ability for better health outcomes. They can feed themselves better, and in addition, they can they can get a job. So it's it's really a really great mission, and we feel terrific about it. Yeah,
2: and we don't really have only people who come out of jail. We have you know a lot of homeless people, uh, former drug addict, veteran, people who really have been kind of disenfranchised by life to a certain extent so it is not young people 35 45 50 years old you know uh, which want to reintegrate the business you know uh, with a few skills mm. not to work at daniel or uh, probably but to open a little uh, you know a little restaurant and uh, kind of redo your own life and, and as you say that
4: the hospitality industry is incredibly welcoming if you were if you've ever worked in a restaurant you know that all kinds of people are welcome if you you show up and you put on the jacket and you do your job you're welcome to stay as long as as long as you can and yeah. and uh, so in that sense it's very rewarding and you know Jacques has always been about education and always been about learning Technique, so we feel like this is a very nice extension of his ethos and his philosophy, and it's just given us a chance to help a lot of people. So, uh, th- last year we granted uh, we granted money to thirty different organizations. We granted over three hundred and fifty thousand dollars last year uh, to help these organizations actually promote these um, these short term culinary training programs
1: well that's a that's a short amount of time for such great work that you have done and I'll speak on behalf of alex and myself if there's anything that we can do for you here mm-hmm. in our area please you know you know there's a lot of uh, wealth in our neighborhood but there's a lot of need underlining so
4: well one of the things that's been challenging for us in this last year uh, it, at the beginning our revenue model was all based on in-person events so we would big dinners and invite people to the dinners. Of course, we haven't been able to do that for the last couple of years. So our our big pivot, we created a membership in the JPF, which is very affordable. The lowest level is $40 a year. There's a great benefit for that, which is you get um, access to our video recipe book that has hundreds of recipes by chefs from all over the country. And, um, and and we're encouraging people to sign up as members because that's actually one of our big pivots for, for trying to continue to generate the revenue that we need to do our work.
2: And I have to say that the chefs are very extraordinarily generous. You know, we ask, I don't know. Anyone we ask who didn't come from Martha Stewart to, uh, to, uh, to Jose Andres to uh, Andrew Zimmer to Thomas Keller to Daniel Working Boulou mm-hmm. to Jean-Georges Van Gerichen, Tom Koldekeau. I mean, you name it. They all say, fine, we do a video for you uh, for free, right? Yeah. Uh, it's amazing. We have, we, uh, he did a first group of 40, another group of 40, and now you're doing the third group of 40. So right. the 120 chefs, which you can jump yeah. for 40 bucks for a young chef. That would be good to see all of those people you know, working and uh, what they can do. Well, Jacques, so much
0: of your career has been based on teaching proper technique to people. How does the foundation go about teaching these uh, aspiring culinarians who are down and out how to cook? Because one thing I know working in restaurants my whole life is a lot of times we'd get those people coming in for jobs anyway. So it's nice to know some of them will come in with more of a culinary uh, foundation
2: and knowing some technique now. Yeah, but because I've done so many hundreds of shows, and, uh, uh Roddy has been able to extrapolate and KQED has been very generous giving that to us. So we have series and series of, uh, of techniques. You know, I did series of techniques. I remember like 30 seconds. How to open an oyster, how to open a clam, how to peel an asparagus, how to sharpen a knife. I don't cook the same way that I cooked 50, 60 years ago. And I did that book, La Technique, 50 years ago. But that book is still in print because the way you sharpen a knife, and eggs or blown out of chicken is the same way. So we stay with those techniques. You know? and, and so one of the
4: things that we just actually completed, it's being released uh, this week at the, the inaugural cohort is tomorrow on the 20th is an online culinary curriculum, oh, a yeah. Jacques Bapin foundation curriculum that's co-hosted with Ruby. Uh, Ruby is R O U X B E not. And yeah. like, you know, <laughs> flour and uh, So Ruby.com and the JPF have worked together to create this curriculum, which is um, open access, which has all of these techniques that Jacques has shot videos of, and they're explained in a way that they've never been explained before. So we worked, we, we sort of drew on my culinary education background and took all of his videos. So there's uh, there's 15 hours of video, 150 videos and recipes, and they're all explained. So uh, it's sequenced learning in as far as the foundational techniques are concerned. It's a really smart way to do
1: it. It is. It truly, truly is. I'm George Hirsch with today's Good to Know. Why do we say American is apple pie? Although America is traditionally associated with apple pie more than any other country, it dates back to England in the 14th century with a recipe by author Geoffrey Chaucer. It contained plenty of other ingredients such as figs, raisins, and pears, but no sugar. The early British pie didn't include sugar, and apples are native to Asia. While apple pie might not be American, its roots in the nation's history have been woven into its cultural fabric. The dessert slogans date back to the Second World War when soldiers going off to battle expressed patriotism and were often quoted for mom and apple pie. According to the American Pie Council, Americans prefer apple over all other pies. Pumpkin comes in a mere second with 50 million pies served for Thanksgiving. Pumpkin, the true indigenous favorite, is worthy of its own saying. After all, pumpkin made into a custard and baked into a crust? That's an American pie perfection. And that's good to know. Autumn is traditionally the time to celebrate the bounty of the harvest, a time to give thanks. One of my favorite times of the year, the aromas in the kitchen of roasting and braising hearty autumn vegetables. On the dinner table frequently at family gatherings, it was very common to enjoy many different sides, platters of cauliflower fritters, marinated artichokes, Brussels sprouts with caramelized onions, maple glazed rutabaga, and plenty of squash. Many, many squash. Hey, Alex. Hey, George. Did I ever tell you about the time, Alex, when I was away? I was on tour and I was uh, away for the holidays. And I had one of those planes, trains, and automobiles. Most people that travel will have that type of adventure where they just can't get back. No, I never heard that story. Okay. Well, it, it... was because I was out in Minnesota and a, a freak storm had come in. I guess it was on the Wednesday of Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving Eve. And there was no way of getting out. Airports were shut down, et cetera. But I did have a friend that was out there with me and he introduced me to a fantastic farming family. They were very welcoming and they said, hey, you know, George is stuck. Can he come? And I went and it was a very, very special Thanksgiving to me because it was it was different from what I was used to. Um, you know, I was used to being around my family, but these were all, I guess I could say they were new friends. and. I just loved the feeling even at the time of of being on the farm. Most of the foods were pretty traditional. You know, of course, the turkey and stuffing and mashed potatoes. But you know what's really interesting was the the first type of food, now this was a, a, a farming family, but one of the dishes they had was a green bean casserole. And that was my first encounter with it. And I might've been in my, I don't know, late 20s, early 30s, something like that. And basically what it was, it was, you know, like frozen green beans. Um, it was like a canned mushroom soup. I didn't write the recipe down, so I'm really going from memory here. And then uh, sprinkled on top were like these fried onions and it was baked. So it it, it kind of just opened up my eyes basically to uh, not necessarily gourmet cooking, but Traditions with the holidays, and the way people celebrate different things in different parts of the country, and I became kind of uh, uh, very interested in that, and and started a lot of research, and of course put some of that in another cookbook, Gather on the Grill, which had all the holidays in there. So I've just found it so interesting that, of course. You know, in the Northeast, we're heavy in Italian influence. That might be like lasagna and big ziti and stuff, and antipast with a traditional uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, in the Southwest, it would be tamales. It would be ribs and kraut or pork and kraut in, in Maryland and Pennsylvania. So all these different types of styles. So, have you ever encountered that? You know, with I know, I know you celebrate Friendsgiving, which is a nice new celebration.
0: Yeah, we do Friendsgiving, but it's more like traditional sides, I think. I mean, I'm curious, you know, November at a farm in Minnesota, it must be cold out. So what kind of a farm was this and what kind of crops did they grow? And is that the reason why you were having canned green bean casserole? Because so many times we think of farms as, you know, this fresh bounty of produce, but it gets pretty cold there. So I'm wondering, is that why they're having green bean casserole or or was it more of a tradition thing?
1: I think it was a, a tradition thing that went back, and it was like a convenience, maybe that came out, uh, maybe post World War when canned goods were really popular, and then frozen vegetables were really popular. And unlike here in our region uh, on eastern Long Island, where you have, you know, farms in the in the tens of acres, um, out in the in the Midwest, you know, their their farms are in the hundreds of thousands of acres. Yeah, they're huge. They're growing corn for uh, maybe feed and for, for different byproducts. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it's not really
0: that like curated farm stand experience we're used to.
1: Yeah, you know, they're in the John Deere. When they're doing their plowing, they're they're in a straight line for like miles. Where they're, yeah. They're, they're, they're well, kinda... for me,
0: I mean, it's all about being able to get a lot of that local stuff, right? Because we have such a good selection here. And- the funny thing is is I, I like to do Friendsgiving with my friends before Thanksgiving, but I don't like to have the same entree, right? No, nobody wants to eat turkey that many times, at least nobody that I know. So we'll try and switch it up. Like for Friendsgiving, well, I did a brisket one year, for example. And actually, I was kind of annoyed because I had done it the traditional Texas way. I had a cookbook from Austin on how to do a brisket. I got a beautiful 16-pound prime brisket, started smoking it at 3 o'clock in the morning. I think it finished around 3 in the afternoon. I wrapped it in butcher paper, threw it in a cooler, brought it over to my friend Dougie's house where we were doing Friendsgiving, and I started slicing it. And, you know, the buffet line formed, and I was just kind of feeding a chafing pan, and... I hit the last slice, put it in there, grabbed myself a glass of wine, got a plate, got on the buffet line. And by the time I got up, all the brisket was gone.
1: (laughs) Gone. Out of here. (laughs) Yeah. So,
0: you know, 16 hours of work kind of went down the tubes for me. But I got a lot of compliments on how good the brisket was, especially from friends who moved to Texas who said it was just as good as anything down there. But for me, it's about sides, and I know you like your sides too. Just as we are men of condiments and we like our sauces and dipping yes, sauces when do. it comes to a big yes, dinner, we, we are sides people. Um, obviously, there's a the traditional, you know, mashed potatoes, gravy. I like biscuits or even Hawaiian rolls to dip in the gravy. Then – Cream corn is usually pretty good because we're out of the f- summer corn by that point. I like sweet potatoes. And then, like you said, squash. I mean, how much stuff have we done with squash? You can stuff them with rice. What do you do with your squash for Thanksgiving?
1: Well, squash can be a whole whole chapter in it in, it, in itself. And, you know, maybe we'll get to talk about it a little later. But um, I, I think it really comes down to the, the way you're presenting it to to the guests. And, you know, I love to take and stuff my squash and bake it and then present what's ever inside of it. One of my most popular requested recipes this time of year for, for years has always been my uh, chicken and rice stuffed squash, which is almost like a paella that's baked within within a pumpkin itself.
0: Yeah. And it's like a self, it's a centerpiece in the dish itself. Absolutely, absolutely.
1: So it's, yeah, it's about cooking. It's about, you know, hanging out with with family or, or, or friends, sometimes even new friends. But I think the most important time about this year, no matter what you're labeling it, whether it is Friendsgiving or Thanksgiving, it's really just about giving thanks and gratitude. Now, Jacques, you have so many... Accomplishments and world accolades. Um, we can't possibly talk about them because it would take it would take weeks and months to 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 read them off. Okay, so I'm just going to drill down very 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 quickly with Julia. Okay, America's greatest chef, American Public Television Lifetime Achievement Award, Emmy Lifetime Achievement Award. You have, I think. 4,000 honorary doctorates. I mean, you you just, uh, from everywhere. But something that's critically important to both Alex and myself, your dissertation, you were so ahead of your time for food and culture. I know how difficult and how much time it takes to go for dissertation, but would you ever share with the world, with us, your thoughts on the food and culture in some type of memoir or script, because it's yeah, it's a it, genius, it, 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 it's a genius, and ahead of your time.
2: It, it is another world, you know. I left school when I was 13 years old. <clears throat> so like, when I arrived in America, the year of 1959, actually the 10th of September, and I think the 23rd or 24th, I was enrolled at Columbia <laughs> in the year. I came on a student boat, and there was a guy who spoke French, a professor, and, you know, I want to learn English mm-hmm. better, the best school is Colombia. never heard of Colombia. So I took the subway, went there, somehow struggled to find someone who spoke French a little bit, and I ended up with English for foreign students. you know. So that was 1959. I finished at Colombia in 1973. So I went to Colombia. I was 15 years of my life. Every semester I was working, of course, sure. to, to go through English for foreign students and some type of validation program that I B.A. and my master. And then, as uh, as uh, a doctoral dissertation, I say I want to speak about food, starting with the playwright poet in the 16th century Ronsard, who did an apology of field salad. I say maybe at the point of departure, and after from Molière to uh, Diderot in the 18th century, the Encyclopedia, and certainly in France, the 19th century, you know Zola, the Belle of Paris, which is Leal or Alexander Dumas, hundred and hundred, up to Proust you know, the Little Madeleine early 20th century. They wanted to show the importance of food in the context of civilization literature. You know, at that time, they said, are you crazy? Food? You want to up with food? <laughs> and now, in the 80s, uh, Julia and I created that program at Boston University, a Master of Culinary Arts with a concentration in the, uh, yeah, uh, uh, a concentration, no, Master of Liberal Arts, I'm sorry, with a concentration in gastronomy, mm. you know, and I, I will be actually teaching there next week. Again, so, uh, so that was a program which, uh, people get into this and become either food writer or, or they can get anything related to food. They will learn about that type of culture too, and I think it's a very, very important. And some really nice theories have been written there by those, you know, master national uh, uh, candidates. You know, so that's a, that's a. But this is relatively new. Yeah, at that time, it was where, uh, you know, food. People didn't know. There really weren't the chefs food. in the kitchen back then. They they weren't they weren't out. I mean, you know, for our family, when Claudine was a year and a half old, I hold her in my arm and I say, Okay, Melange, she <laughs> stirred the pot. she was the pot, so she made it. She's going to eat it, she made it, you know. So <laughs> you have to get the kid involved. There is no place like the kitchen when you come from school sitting down. Smelling the kitchen, hearing the voice of your mother, your father, the cling of the the equipment, and the taste—I mean, those tastes of dishes that you have as a child, regardless of whether you where, wherever you come from, in anywhere in the world, those tastes are very essential, very visceral. They stay with you forever. So it's very, very important to get those kids involved in that. And my, my granddaughter, who just left here when she went, did several shows with me. When she was small, she stood on a stool next to me. Now she's taller than me. But uh, I said, Give me the salad. Give me that. Okay, let's go set the parsley. We go to the garden. I say, No, that's child. Test it. That parsley. That's tarragon. Test it. Then we go to the market. I say, Buy me some pear. Make sure they're ripe. Are they ripe? <laughs> Did you smell them? Did you touch those tomatoes? So she come back to the house. Help me wash the salad. And then, you know, that's what a canvas. Of talking about, and then of course, you sit down and you talk, and one conversation brings another conversation. So that always been very important for us, that type of uh, you know that type of situation in the kitchen and being together and so forth. You know, so I can
1: see behind you, and this is where I have to get into next, because this is another huge part of of your of your genius and amazing craft is your art. How have you been able to, with your busy schedule, maintain and just say,
2: okay, now is my, now is my art time? It comes and it goes. I mean, I have planning from early 60s, 61, too, and it fact, some sculpture, too. I took two classes in my life when I was going at Columbia, one mm-hmm. in sculpture and one in drawing. And uh, so some area of the last uh, 50 years or so, I did much more than other area, but what I did... Also, we have book here uh, after over 50 years of marriage, when people came to the house, we wrote the menu and the, 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 our... the, oh, wow. and the guest sign on the other page, say funny thing or whatever. Then I started you illustrating know, I like those was... menus and I, I realized and at then... some point that I was doing, growing a lot of chicken. So I decided now uh, the next book that I am publishing now it's a book of chicken coming out next year. Excellent. I wanted to do, I have over 130 uh, drawing of chicken and they wanted recipe, which I did not want to do recipe. So I tell them story about chicken and about egg uh, through all of my life. But uh, those book of menu... You know, I have my mother in it, my, my two brothers, uh, many, many people uh, who are gone now, and it's so, my whole life. Um, yeah, and it's good memory. You look at those 15 years, 20 years, 30 years ago. Sure. I have at home, I have those book of menu, and I have her. I remember she was four years old. She did the drawing of the chicken, too, and all She was four years old with her friend. You know, you have all of this, all your kids. You see the, 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 the first birthday of the kid, you know, his first thing in school, Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving, family, mother, father. So, you know, yeah, just, I have everything in those books. Make hey, sure yeah. you say hello to Jacques when you see him Jacques we Yeah. Well, also, actually, okay. I meant
1: to try and get him a, a note before we were recording. He
2: remembered of yes. for my wedding. And he's in he was three, maybe three, four years old, something like that, 1966. So, you know, and his two sisters. and. Pierre was really a, a mentor for me and a very, very good friend and uh, a great guy. Yes. Well, I
1: got to see all your pictures and and hear all the stories. They gave a tribute to Craig Claiborne and and Pierre a few years oh, ago. Oh yes.
3: See if you can.
1: And I got to see all the stories and, and all the activities. That's where I learned about the picnic and uh, your wedding, uh, all the all the wonderful wonderful memories back it,
2: then. You know, so I learned a lot. I mean, I came to America to stay a year, uh, maybe two years, and that's what sixty four years ago, you know. And a, a great deal because of uh, you know the food world was very small. Within six months, I was here, and you correctly on. We just started at the New York Times. Julia Child and James Beard. And those were the the trinity of cooking in America. But the food world was really very small. But the one who probably influenced me the most of all, that Craig Label, you know. Could of his style, the way he received and I spent so much time at his house and all that. Craig was a great guy. And uh, I always wanted them to do an American master on him, but they still haven't done one, yeah. you know, so maybe someday. Was he a big inspiration for your writing, Jacques? Yes, to a certain extent. More so was Helen Helen McCullough was the food editor of McCall, House Beautiful. She lived next to me in New York, and she's the one who introduced me to Pierre to Craig, uh, actually, and uh who kind of pushed me into writing and going to Colombia and doing this. And I started doing things with House Beautiful too. So uh, yeah, yes, but but uh, uh, yeah, certainly. Uh, Craig was uh, very influential this way too. Yes. Now,
1: there's uh, just one more thing I got to add, and it just came into my mind. It just reminded me with Pierre, is that you two uh, were kind of wooed away by
2: Howard. Yes, the old right. Howard
1: Johnson, Mister Johnson. Right. <laughs> Claudine, yeah, do you remember those years?
2: Oh, yeah, that was 1960. And, uh, Howard D. Johnson, which was, uh, in fact, if you have yes. my book, The Apprentice, you <laughs> will see a picture there of my wedding at Craig. And sitting at the table, Howard D. Johnson and his wife, uh, uh they came to my wedding. And I remember I went to pick him up because he had a boat. He came to Sagar Board. Uh, and I went to pick him up. He was sitting <laughs> on the face <chase> of <laughs> Don <Perignon>, I remember. <laughs> so, okay, let's go. So, uh, yes, he... We came to, uh, to to Howard Johnson because of him. And it's interesting because uh, uh, at that time, uh, Mr. Johnson said, if Jacques wants to work with us, he has to work in one of our restaurants first. So I went to work about four months in uh, Howard Johnson on quaint Boulevard, was one of the biggest ones. And uh, this was my first exposure to, quote, American yeah. chef. Because at of the course. pavilion, yeah. to adult French chef to... Uh, all of those American chefs, we are black kids, you know, which i learning. That's how I learned to uh, work on a griddle and saute, uh, uh, you know, and do everything on the griddle from eggs to mashed to, to uh, brown potato to uh, hamburger stuff and uh, as in any kitchen, you know, you have to, uh, to show your marks. They don't really <laughs> care. They never heard of the pavillon. <laughs> so to do, so I learned a great deal from them. And after at the commissary, you know, the production we did, you know, I opened the World Trade Center with Joe Baum. Uh, in 1973, I was a consultant at the Russian Tea Room in the 80s. You know, I opened, when I f- finished, uh, the, I opened a restaurant on Fifth mm-hmm. Avenue called La Potagerie, large soup. I'm saying all of that to say I would never have been able to do any of this without my training at Howard Johnson as a French chef. and knew nothing about that type of production and marketing and so forth. So Howard Johnson was a big, big experience for me. Well, Jack, you've been you've been just
1: a, a great experience for for all of us, and and Claudine and Roli and Churi. I know she she hasn't had time. I guess we couldn't work out uh, uh, her schedule for this. But it, you are definitely the. She's,
2: she's she's working. She's been working in the, okay. the, the, been working. she
3: works at Atria Senior Living. Oh. so she's um, which is really kind of an amazing thing. It's uh, it happens to be one of the one of the things she wrote her college essay on was her experience working um, with all of these amazing people, and so she's a food runner and she talks with every single every single resident every day, and you know, and she dealt with COVID outbreaks and she dealt with all of that stuff. She was, 16. she was 16 when she started working there, and, and it really has changed her and given her just this this kindness and empathy uh, for, for others, which is way,
2: way, way beyond <laughs> her years. For old people like me.
3: For everybody, actually, even for old people like me. Well, there is this <laughs> holiday.
1: It's called Thanksgiving, but I like to kind of break it up, and I like to give thanks for all your giving. All the giving that you, Jacques, Claudine, and, and the whole family has 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 given us. This exchange today has just been marvelous. It's been a highlight for, for me,
2: for Alex, for all of us. I've been very lucky. I've been very lucky. I have my friend, Tom Hopkins, who does my art site. I would never have done an art site, sell my art. I have Claudine. We did my foundation, my son-in-law, Instagram, she does Facebook. We have like one and a half million people or whatever. So uh, I would never have done any of this. So I've been very, very he lucky. has a
3: good team. Has.
1: It has been a true pleasure to have you all join us today. Thank you, Jacques, Claudine and Roly. That was the first family of culinary arts in America. Jacques Papin, chef, educator, artist, host of more than three decades on PBS with daughter Claudine Papin. President and co founder of the Jacques Papin Foundation, and her husband, Chef Roly Wesson, Connor Instructor and Associate Professor at Johnson and Wales University in Providence, Rhode Island, co founder and executive director of the Jacques Papin Foundation. For more on Jacques' art videos, visit jacquespapanart.com. And for more on the great work of the Jacques Pepin Foundation, visit their website at jp.foundation.
0: For more food, culture, and lifestyle tips, guest interviews, and our podcast, visit WLIW.org radio and ChefGeorgeHirsch.com.
1: And join our conversation on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WLIWFM and at George Hirsch. All right, let's talk, Alex, some squash and pumpkin. I mean, what could be more seasonal than this time of year? Yeah, and
0: what could be more versatile, right? I mean, you can decorate your porch with them. You can decorate your countertop with them. But then you can stuff them, scrape them, eat them, toast the seeds, make pastries out of them, make whatever
1: you want. So what what are some of your top uh, squash items?
0: Well, I mean, summertime, I like to grill zucchini. You know, when you're out there grilling anything, I like a nice grilled zucchini. Uh, I enjoy... A winter squash in the winter i like to make soup you know i have a batch of spicy butternut squash soup in my fridge right now with toasted pepitos that i put on top uh there's just so much that you can do with them it actually you know what it makes me think of something i think that we should play a game because squash are so versatile and there's so many different kinds let's play a game called name that squash i'm gonna rapid fire squash at you and i want you to tell me what you think the best application for that squash is Okay. Are you All ready? right. Go. Because this might I'm get ready. intense. All right. It's, I'm sure it will be.
1: The first annual recording
0: of Name That Squash
1: Summer <laughs> Squash. Summer Squash, of course, would be zucchini. And you could also have the yellow squash, which is a little bit softer, a little bit more moisture content. Very good for grilling either one of them or sauteing. Patty Pan. Patty pan, very small, delicate little squash. Really don't have much flavor of their own. Again, a very attractive item in addition for garnishing platters. Um, I would keep it simple and just saute them. Yeah, even like just when they're split
0: and have a little sear, yep. they
1: just make a plate look nice. I didn't know you were giving editorial on this. I yeah. thought you were just asking
0: me the questions. And sometimes <laughs> I like to just chime in with my like <laughs> two cents. All right, back to the game, butternut.
1: Okay. Oh, butternut! Now, oh my gosh! Now you're now you're now you're kicking. You got soups. You got stews. You got casseroles. You have butternut lasagna. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh! It is it is the one of the most flavorful flavorful of of the squash family. Acorn, acorn, very very small. Again, it looks like a little acorn. Split them in half. Season them, a little bit of honey, roast them upside down 10 minutes, flip them over, maybe about another 10 to 15, depending upon the size. Oh, you got good eats there. Buttercup. Buttercup. Okay. Buttercup is, uh, buttercup. Wait a second. Is there another name for that? You might have stumped me there. Butter. Yeah, I, I think
0: that's like a smaller version of a butternut, to be honest with you. I just okay, thought that I, thought I, thought so. I wasn't trying to stump you, but I thought maybe you knew something I didn't know. They they're like those ones that look like a butternut but short.
1: Yes. Okay.
0: You um, do the same thing else? with them. make a soup out of it. Spaghetti, spaghetti. squash. I think this spaghetti is one squash. that's popular.
1: Oh, very very popular and very very good. Uh, good substitute as a non gluten spaghetti. Take split them in half, steam them until they're uh, fork tender. You can let them cool just slightly. But while they're still warm, scrape the inside with a fork and you have the makings for anything that you would use spaghetti with.
0: Okay, bonus round. You weren't expecting this, but now we're going to pumpkin town. What do you okay. do with a Long Island cheese pumpkin?
1: Oh, Long Island cheese pumpkin, one of our hometown favorites. I I, I love them. Also known as a Cinderella pumpkin. And you can take, just cut a little uh, cap off the top. You can you can bake it with the cap on for about 15, 20 minutes, pull it out, season it a little bit more, put it back in the oven, and you can bake it. And it can be the signature, like I talked about earlier, with our stuffed chicken and rice, like our paella stuffed pumpkin. I love cheese pumpkins.
0: Yeah, I do too. Now- now is a cheese pumpkin the same thing as a musk de Provence because I know that they are sometimes called the fairy tale pumpkin and they almost look like what Cinderella's carriage turns into but I also believe that they're very similar in their applications when it comes to cooking.
1: Uh, very very close. the uh, Long Island pumpkin will be a little bit more uh, sunken in whereas uh, the other pumpkin would be a little bit more robust, a little bit higher in the, in the center, again, like the Cinderella pumpkin.
0: Yeah, I think those Cinderella pumpkins, they're hard too. You know, I think that kind of scares people away a little bit because you really got to get in there to cut the top off and to scrape them out. But the fact that they are hard and meaty like that is what makes them better to eat because the last pumpkin that I'm going to give you, which I think I know your answer is just the traditional orange pumpkin. What do you do with that?
1: Uh, also known as a sugar pumpkin. Okay, uh, again, that would be very good for uh, roasting, cooking down. It would make excellent fillings for, let's say, a ravioli or uh, even uh, any anything that you would stuff. And another great little nugget about the pumpkins is when you scrape out the inside of the pumpkin, don't throw the seeds out. The pepitas that you talked about are a great little snack. You know, you can see the ball players all the time chewing them, you know, in the dugout. And basically just take, season them any way you would, you would like if you let them hot, sweet, spicy, and then just roast them in the oven with a little bit of olive oil or butter. Glad to have you join us on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio. I'm George Hirsch. And I'm Alex Getzfried. Our producer is Delaney Hafner,
0: along with production support from Kyle Lynch. Supervising producer is Allie Gimbel. George Hirsch and Diane Michelli are co-executive producers. George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio is a co-production of Hirsch Media and Audio Engagement Group, LLC.
1: Thanks so much for tuning in to George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio, the show that celebrates how our lives are connected through food and culture. For more episodes and our podcast, visit www.w.org radio and chefgeorgehirsch.com and your favorite streaming and podcast platforms. We'll see you next week right here on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio.